0: It is amazing um, that we could have uh, anything, we could have any joy or any peace or any happiness um, if, uh, if we really understood the depth of sin that is in this world. Um, it is amazing that things are not worse than they are. And Father, uh, we want to humbly acknowledge that all over the world, um, there are all sorts of places where um, there is so much more of a view of the brokenness of sin and suffering Um, and you have blessed us so much. But Father, um, we don't want to know your blessing because of our circumstances. We want to know your blessing because of our spiritual circumstances. Uh, We want you to uh, revive us, regenerate us. Um, For those of us who are not saved, we just pray that you would work in their hearts to understand uh, the meaning of prayer and that you would also uh, work in the hearts of those who do know you but have questions of prayer and have questions about a relationship with you and communication with you. Uh, We want Um, To know your thoughts, not my opinions or anyone else's opinions, but uh, what your word has to say about these things. So, Father, we pray you would speak through your word, which is powerful and used by the Holy Spirit to transform lives. Um, And we are confident you can do these things because you have promised to do these things for those whom you love. So, we thank you and we're excited to see what you have in store for us today. And we pray this in your name. Amen. All right, if you have a Bible, open it up to Luke 18. Luke 18, we are basically getting right in it today. And as you are turning to Luke 18, I want to just briefly remind you that we are in our second week of a series on prayer that we started last week. And last week, we were not trying to answer any of the big questions about prayer. We were simply trying to establish one simple point. Maybe you wrote it down um, for the question, or maybe you phrased it a little uh, differently. But the main point from last week, Was that prayer is what happens when you want to live with God. Prayer is what happens when you want to live with God. If you understand, as a believer, the kind of role that God has in your life, you will pray. And the kind of role that God has in your life is not just that he's generally or generically sovereign over the universe, but that he is personally sovereign over your circumstances and he wants you to know That prayer is a way of communicating back to him the fact that he rules over your life. And he doesn't just rule so that random things would happen for his glory, but that he would be glorified by you understanding his sovereign and compassionate and kindness towards you personally. That's what we're trying to establish. If you understand God that way, which is who God is, then you will pray. And you won't pray anything more specifically than simply communicating your life to God. That's what we're trying to establish from Psalm 23. And honestly, today, we're really just going to build on that. And the way we're going to build on that is seeing how Jesus himself talked very similarly about prayer. Jesus taught on prayer a lot through the course of his ministry. And one of the ways that he taught, which many of you are aware of, is through parables, parables. Parables are basically stories or illustrations to help people understand a very important truth about God. And as Jesus told many parables, he told them in different ways with many different stories. Some of them, he would explain a parable, and it would be a couple chapters later when he actually explained what the parable meant. And then sometimes Jesus actually explained a parable and he didn't directly tell us what the parable meant. You were supposed to infer simply through reading it in the context of when he was teaching. But sometimes, as is in the case with Luke 18, Jesus would teach a parable and he'd be very, very clear about the purpose of that parable. And as we start reading Luke 18, Jesus explains to us the purpose of a parable that he's about to tell. And unsurprisingly in our series, that parable is about prayer. And you'll see that if you look at Luke 18, verse one. We're gonna cover one to eight, but verse one explains immediately what this parable will be about. Verse one says, and he, so that is Jesus, told them, them being the disciples and anyone else in the crowds that were listening to him. He told them a parable to the effect that number one, they ought always to pray and number two, that they would not lose heart. So, Jesus himself, before explaining this parable, wants his followers to pray. In the same way we understood that Jesus is our chief shepherd from Psalm 23 last week, his sheep are told to pray. Because prayer isn't just part of Christian routine, in order for Christians to earn points with God, prayer matters. It matters so much that most of the people that I have read trying to explain prayer to Christians have basically said that if you are a Christian and you don't pray, it is hard to really recognize you as a Christian. It is that intertwined with being a Christian. Christians pray. And as a result of that, Jesus is going to say that we ought not just to pray sometimes, not just pray often, but he says we ought always to pray. Jesus's point is going to be that prayer should be consistent. And number two, he says it shouldn't just be consistent, but we shouldn't stop doing it. And so he says we should not lose heart. Don't give up on prayer. Don't be discouraged. Uh, Don't lose hope that prayer is actually doing something, which is really, really kind of Jesus to say that, because it's making it obvious that Jesus understands that prayer is hard, Jesus would not tell this parable if he didn't understand that his people would sometimes struggle with prayer. It's part of the reason we're doing a series on this. It's because Jesus understands us. And so he's going to explain a story that's going to help us understand why we need to keep praying. And he begins that in verse 2, and he continues the story in 2, verse 6. And you'll see it if you look at your text or looking on the screen behind. Starting in verse 2, Jesus says this. Jesus said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he, being the judge, refused. But afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice." so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. This is the word of the living God, and this is what Jesus himself told us to understand prayer. Jesus begins by saying, once upon a time in a certain city far, far away, there was a judge, and this judge neither feared God nor respected man. Jesus is presenting to us a judge that is the worst authority that you would ever want in charge of anything, let alone your own life. This judge is immoral, and he is unconcerned with anybody besides himself. He's supposedly gotten his position so that he can live comfortably, and therefore he could care less about doing his job or actually doing the job, which is to deal with injustice in his city. He didn't care that God would hold him accountable. And he did not care that other people were suffering wrong and abuse. A lot of times we can kind of throw out this term by saying the worst. My homework's the worst. My teacher's the worst. The situation's the worst. Jesus' point is that this judge is the worst. This is the worst authority you could ever have over you. And yet, because of his job, this judge was approached by a widow. There was a widow in the city who Jesus says needed justice. Now maybe lots of people in this city had given up going to this judge because they knew about his character and they knew that he would probably do nothing for them. But this widow is different. And as a widow, you need to understand, she was one of the least represented or cared for people in the whole city. In this society, she could be easily abused, taken advantage of, and manipulated, specifically because she had no husband. And in this society, that was a huge deal. We might think even now about the vulnerability of widows, but even then, it was way more important. It's so important that actually when Paul, in the New Testament later, is writing a letter to Timothy, a young pastor, he takes a whole chapter, one of the six chapters he writes to him as a young pastor, to tell him, make sure you don't forget about the widows, Widows were vulnerable. But this widow doesn't act like a vulnerable person. Instead, she was in some kind of situation that Jesus doesn't specify, and she's been done wrong, and she desires justice. And so she goes to this judge, and she refuses to take no for an answer. She refuses to give up asking this judge for justice. And there's a very simple reason for that. For her, her situation is clear. She knows what the judge should do, and therefore, she knows it is right to ask him to do it. He should give me justice, so I'm going to ask him for justice. And the amazing thing is, despite all the circumstances against her, it actually works. Now, it doesn't work immediately because Jesus actually gives us the thought process of the judge. He reminds us once again in verse 4, he does not care what God thinks of him. He does not care what men think of him. But eventually, the judge gives in anyways. And there's a very simple reason. In verse 5, he says, she's persisting me so much, I feel like she's beating me up. And that's literally what he's saying. The literal term for she's being persistent is this idea of getting a black eye. She is bothering me so much. It is destroying my peace, destroying my comfortability. So I guess in order to get that back, I'm going to give her what she wants. So the judge grants the widow's request. That's Jesus's parable. It's a very interesting, seemingly random parable. But I think even more before verse six and eight explain something to us, it's a little confusing parable it's confusing because remember how Jesus explained what this parable is about. He explained that this is about prayer. This is about making sure you keep asking God for things. And then all of a sudden he tells a story about this judge who only gave a widow something because she was bothering him. And there's a clear thing that I was thinking this week, and I'm sure you might be thinking it right now, which is, is Jesus' point to compare these two judges? Is Jesus' point that prayer works because we can bother God into giving us what we want? Is Jesus trying to explain that God doesn't care about our prayers, but he will answer us if we just keep annoying him? And if it was a story that we tell, we might think that that's how it works. But I'm very glad to say that's exactly not what jesus is trying to say jesus is actually trying to make the exact opposite point point. and he sets it up when he explains the rest of the parable's meaning and he says that in verses six and seven and eight where he says this and the lord said hear what the unrighteous judge says and will not god give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night will he delay over them long I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. This is the point. Jesus is not comparing these two judges, the unrighteous judge and God. Jesus is not comparing them. Jesus is contrasting them. Jesus is contrasting them. Jesus is saying the unrighteous judge is the opposite of God's character. Think about justice from an earthly perspective. This is how Jesus is trying to get you to think. There are times when even in a broken world, we get justice. There are times when even the most uncaring people are in authority positions and will still do the right thing, even though they don't want to. There are still times when even corrupt judges, which still exist today, in a broken justice system, which has always been the case everywhere in society, There are times when even when all of those odds are against us, justice is still served. And now, don't think about justice from an earthly perspective, but from God's sovereign perspective. Imagine if God, who is the divine judge and authority over all of life, including yours, is not against us, but is for us. Imagine if God has in his sovereignty stacked all of the odds in your favor and then ask yourself the question, if that is our God who is sovereign and compassionate and has stacked all of the odds towards you for good, do you think he would ever ignore a single request that you gave him? And Jesus's point is absolutely not. If even this broken world sometimes accomplishes justice, how much more will our sovereign God accomplish justice for the people whom he loves? And he's trying to make that point very, very clear. He's trying to explain that this is a contrast. And the way you can see a contrast is in the different relationship between the judge and the widow in the parable and God and us. The widow and the judge had no relationship. But contrasting with God and his people, Jesus uses a word to explain how close our relationship is. And that word is in verse 7, which is the word elect. God calls his people elect. The word elect means chosen. It means God chose us before anything existed, before you existed, or before the world existed. God in his love determined that believers... Would believe. God's people are just as needy as the widow is, but they're not dismissed, despised, or ignored like the widow would have been. And that's why he describes them as elect, because elect isn't just a term to describe when we became believers. It's a word that describes how much God loves the people who believe in him. And one of the best places in the whole Bible you can go to see that the word elect is full of love from God to his people is Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1 is basically one big run-on sentence of Paul explaining all of the amazing benefits specifically for the elect. And if you read Ephesians 1, 3 to 13, you will see nine evidences of God's love towards the elect. And I'm just going to read them for you quickly. Number one, the elect are blessed by God. Number two, the elect have spiritual blessings. Number three, they are chosen in love. Number four, they are adopted as sons and daughters through Christ. Number five, they've been lavished with the riches of his grace. Number six, they've been included into God's purposes. Number seven, they've obtained a divine inheritance. Number eight, they've received hope. And number nine, they've been sealed with God's own Holy Spirit. Which is basically saying they've been guaranteed to make it all the way to heaven. The point is that when believers are described as God's elect, that is one of the deepest, most loving ways that God could describe his people. It's maybe the best word to be called in the whole Bible. But the point is, how does God show his love to the elect? That's what Jesus is trying to get to, and what he's explaining is that God shows his love for his elect by allowing them to participate in God's plan. He allows his elect to participate in God's plan. Because God loves them and he wants them to see what he's doing, he allows his people to cry out to him and that he would hear them. And not only that, but that that would be one of the most important ways that God fulfills his plan. Did you get that? That your prayers would be part of how God accomplishes justice in this world. That's Jesus' point. Verse 7 Will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? And the obvious answer is of course he will, because he loves them. He loves them and therefore gives them justice when they ask him. He doesn't just provide justice, he wants to be requested for justice because the way he's going to work out his plan is through a personal relationship. God provides justice through prayer because he wants to fulfill his purposes and fulfill them through a personal relationship. There's another question in verse 7. Will he delay long over them? Will God take forever, like the unrighteous judge, to answer the questions? The answer comes right after absolutely not. Absolutely not. Verse 8, I tell you, he will give justice them speedily because God is personally involved in your life and he loves you. If you know him, then he will answer all of your prayers quickly. And this is why this parable gets to the heart of why prayer matters so importantly. Because God is sovereign and compassionate over us. And he proves that by listening to your prayers and then accomplishing divine justice through your prayers. And honestly, that is the message. That's the whole parable. And we could stop there. That's what Jesus is trying to get at. But what I want to do briefly in this second half here is I want to basically go through that again, but do that by answering a question that we often have in prayer. Because if we took that, we might forget it, and then the next time a question about prayer comes up, we might forget that all of this is answering that question. So what I want to do is put that question out and then say all of the same stuff again so you guys are clear that this answers so much of the worries that we have about prayer. So this is the question, and I think it's a question maybe many of you have if God is sovereign, why should I pray? Sovereign means God is omniscient and in control of everything. So if God is sovereign, why should I pray? If God has a perfect plan for my life, why does it matter if I communicate with him? Why does it matter if I ask him for anything? Because honestly, if I were going to ask God for anything, that means that I think that I could change God's mind. Doesn't it? I think that's the reason we ask that question. Why should I ask God for anything if he's never going to change his mind for someone like me? And the reason that question has been asked for such a long time is because it's a good question. It does seem tricky. And it seems tricky because it's true that we can't change God's mind. If God is good and sovereign, we can't change his mind. And that's really important to know. R.C. Sproul has a video on this i've watched it probably 10 times in the last 10 weeks and he answers this question if god is sovereign why pray and he has a very funny way of illustrating this idea of us or anyone else thinking we could change god's mind he says this imagine god was going to implement his plan he got everything together and he was about to accomplish it and that plan came from a head that had perfect knowledge and absolute wisdom and had total righteousness and integrity, and because it's God's mind, it's totally incapable of doing anything evil or foolish. And then he says, then something comes along that he hasn't prepared for. You pray. And all of a sudden, God's plan just is ruined. It's totally out of whack because you prayed. And then he asks this question. What kind of God do you believe in if you think that you can be God's guidance counselor, or because you have a better plan, or because you have information that he lacked before you asked it. And that is a very appropriate way to think about God's sovereignty. In verse eight, Jesus says, I tell you, God will give justice to his elect speedily. Now ask the question, does God give us justice because we taught him what justice was? The answer must be no. Because our justice is biased. It's towards us. There's not a single one of us or anyone else in this universe who has a perfect understanding of justice. If we were God, the world would be ruined. And so that actually just kind of leaves us with the same question. But if that's all true, why are we praying? And he wants us to know why because there is a reason. And again, Sproul puts this in a way that I think is really helpful, which is the way we're asking the question is, if God is sovereign, why pray? Let's change the question a little bit. What if the question was this? Does prayer change things? Does praying change things? And he says, the answer is absolutely yes. Prayer does change things. John Calvin is a theologian whose name you've probably heard of before. And you might think that because he was a smart, theologically gifted guy, that he was just a guy who just hung out in his room all the time and never talked to anybody. But the reason that he wrote so much and is beloved by so many people is because he knew that people had questions like this. If God is sovereign, why pray? And the reason that he cared to answer them was because he was not just a theologian, he was a pastor. He was someone who loved people. He loved Jesus, and therefore he wanted to help people answer their questions. And he actually wrote a lot about this. And so just like last week, I want to share what I'm calling big boy quotes, which is a quote that might be a little bit complicated. But I'm going to explain it after. And for those of you who can explain it or understand it just by the quote, I think it'll be really helpful to see how he phrased it. You can see it up here, and I'll explain it after. This is what John Calvin said god ordained prayer not for himself but as an exercise of piety for man and you can see what he means is god gave us prayer so we would grow in godliness so god gave us prayer he didn't need prayer it's a gift then he continues our prayers do not get in the way of providence which is god's sovereignty going towards good it does not get in the way of providence because god in his providence ordains the means along with the end. Remember that phrase. God ordains the means with the end. Prayer is thus a means ordained to receive what God has planned to bestow. What God has determined to give out of his own free will, even before he is asked, he promises to give all the same in response to our prayers. Now listen, if that quote is a little complicated, that's totally fine. Let me explain to you And simplify this quote for you. This is what he's talking about. God decides both what is going to happen and then how it happens. Does that make sense? God explains and ordains, so he decides what is going to happen and then how it's going to happen. You know, if I have to get here to the church, I have many ways of doing that. I could take the bus. I could take the car. I could walk. I could bike. I have two decisions. Where I'm going, so what I am doing, and then how I'm going to do it. And that's how God's sovereignty operates. He determines everything that's going to happen, but then he has a plan, a methodology, a step one, two, three of how that's going to happen. And this is the point even though God determines everything that happens in your life and the lives of everyone else in the world, the how, the how it's going to happen is prayer. Do you get that? Even though God has determined how everything is going to happen, he has ordained that you would participate through prayer, that you would pray and God would do what he already planned to do the how of God is gonna do things through prayer. And it's not because our prayers can change God's mind. It's not because they're powerful enough to change God's mind, but it's because God wants to invite us to see what he's doing. It's not enough just to know what he's doing. He wants you to see what he's doing. This is the example that I think might be helpful. Uh, Raise your hand if you grew up watching a sport on television basketball, you know, football, whatever. So I'm from Canada, so we watch hockey. And you're not Canadian if you don't watch hockey. So when I was a kid, we watched hockey on television. And you know what? Hockey is a difficult sport to watch on television because it's got this thing called a puck and it's like the ball. And it's very, very small. And you can't even know what's happening if you can't see the puck. So for years as a kid, I would watch hockey with my dad pretending to be enjoying it and having no idea what was going on because I couldn't see the puck. And then one day, I could finally spot the puck. I finally saw what was going on. And I was like, hockey is awesome, because I could totally understand like, what was happening. And then from there, I could understand like, not just how someone was scoring, but who was scoring and how good they were. And I could start seeing strategies and everything. Everything came together. And I started really enjoying watching hockey on television. And then one day, I got to go to a game. I got to be in the arena. I got to see what was going on. And hockey became like 10 times more exciting. And then years after that, I got to be in an arena and watch a hockey game live within the first 10 rows. And that was amazingly exciting. There's a huge difference between watching the game on TV and being in the front row. And in the same way, there's a huge difference between knowing God is doing something and seeing him do it from front row seats. I think many of you know the Bible. And I think it's difficult for you to believe the Bible because you haven't seen God do anything. And the reason you haven't seen God do anything is you've, you never prayed for God to do anything. And that's like trying to enjoy the game on TV when God has invited you to have front row seats to watch what he's doing, to watch the game that he is performing, to see exactly how God is accomplishing justice of his own will, but allowing you to see it by asking him to accomplish justice in this world, and then him actually doing it. That is why prayer is so important. Because God could do everything on his own. He doesn't need any of us. And yet he's told you, if you pray for things, and the more you know me, the more you know what to pray for, and the more you have motivation to pray for things, and then you get to see God do those things. Do you want that? Is that something that's Exciting. If it is exciting for you, the Bible is full of places explaining to you the motivation, but Jesus' point is that that should be so made it motivating that it should move you to pray right away, and I think if you are motivated to pray, that the last thing this parable does for you is it doesn't just explain why prayer is important, it doesn't just answer the question, if God is sovereign, why should you pray, but it also gives you three reminders of how you can pray if this actually motivates you. And I'll mention them all pretty quickly. If you're motivated to pray, then number one, you should pray according to God's just plan. Pray according to God's just plan. Remember the attitude of the widow. The unrighteous judge has a job to do, to accomplish justice. So it's right that I ask him for justice. And our judge, God, is not unrighteous. Therefore, how much more right is it for us to ask him to accomplish his will? Jesus had that attitude at the end of his life before he was going to die. And remember, Jesus is the greatest example of prayer that there ever was or ever will be. When Jesus was about to die, he prayed. And he said in Matthew chapter 26, verse 39, going a little further into Gethsemane, Jesus fell on his face and he prayed saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Many people for a long time have struggled with this prayer because it seems like Jesus disagrees with the Father. But that's not what's happening. Jesus is in the garden, and he understands that in about 24 hours, less than 24 hours, he's going to experience hell. And it's not a happy thought. Hell is hell. Hell is awful and he's going to bear hell for every single person who will ever believe in him. And that is a horrifying thought. And yet in the midst of that, he says, Father, in your perfect inconceivable mind, if this can happen through another means, that'd be nice, it'd be better than experiencing hell. But Father, because I know that's the only way that any person could ever be saved, we will absolutely do it your way. Jesus is not disagreeing with the Father. He's in perfect agreement with the Father because he understands as someone who intimately knows the Father. Because remember, he wasn't just born and existed for 33 years. He's known the Father for eternity. He is God. And because of that, he knows exactly what to pray for. And if you believe that God is sovereign and is working everything for justice, then you're going to start to know what to pray for in certain situations. Whether it's something seemingly minor, like a bullying incident at school, or whether it's something worse in the world, like a war going on that you want to be stopped, God says justice is something worthy of being prayed for. And you're going to have situations where you're going to understand more deeply what you should pray for because you know who God is. And so you should pray for it. But number two, if you're motivated to pray, then number two, you should pray depending on God's just plan. You should depend on his plan. And what I mean by saying depending on is that sometimes you must understand that God's plan is not going to be in agreement to your plan. You're going to pray for something, whether you know it or not it's not going to be god's plan in james chapter 4 in verse 15 james rebukes people who make future plans they say i'm going to go and do this tomorrow and what he tells those people is that is foolish are you god do you have any idea what's going to happen tomorrow no but god does and therefore he says in verse 15 you ought to say if the lord wills then we will live and do this or that God is in control of the future. And because of that, instead of assuming what our future is going to look like, we should pray to God about our futures, knowing that he might design a different future than you want for yourself. And that's okay. In fact, that's good. In fact, that is amazing. Because God's plan for your future is a million times better than your plan for your future. If God doesn't want you to go to college, that's good. If God doesn't want you to get into a career that you envisioned for yourself, then that's good. Because God knows the best plan for your life possible. And that affects the way you pray. It affected the way Paul prayed in 2 Corinthians 12 verses 8 and 9, where he was pleading with the Lord, it says, about a thorn given in his flesh, some kind of pain that was bugging him and it was affecting his ministry. And he prayed, God, can you get rid of this? This kind of sucks. And Jesus responded to him, but not the way he intended. Jesus said, my grace is sufficient for you and my power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul said he understood why. Why God did not remove this thorn? It was because he didn't want Paul to be conceited and arrogant. And it was better for Paul to be in momentary pain and be less conceited, less prideful, more humble, and more in love with God than it was to be removed from pain and be prideful. And now Paul in heaven understands perfectly that that was exactly the best thing that could have possibly happened for him. Pray depending on God's just plan. Pray understanding that God has a better plan for you with this in mind. Even though God won't answer all of your prayers the way you want, he will listen to every prayer you ever give him. God will listen to your prayers and he will answer them, every single one, but he will not answer all of them according to exactly what you want, because his plan is better. And the third reason you should be motivated to to pray kind of comes from that. The third reason you should be motivated to pray, because God is sovereignly working out a plan for you through your prayers, is number three, it should make you pray confident in God the Father's plan. It should pray confident in God the Father's plan. The point here is that God isn't just just, He's your Father. He loves you. Here's something I think helpful to notice in verse 7. Jesus says, Will not God give justice to His elect who cry to Him day and night? Did you notice something about God's people? He identifies God's people as people who pray to Him day and night. That's not a warning against God's people, that's just a description of God's people. Do you understand? There's not a baby in this whole world who like never cried, because every baby in this world was lonely and needy and wanted its parents. That is instinct, and every believer has a divine instinct, which is to constantly, both day and night, cry out to God, because we know He listens, we know He hears, we know He cares, and we know He answers. And we're certain of that. And the more you see God work out his plan, and the more you see how he's answering prayer, the more confident you are, and the more you pray. That is the instinct of the believer. And in the same way that a parent, that your parents have plans for your future that are for your good, but they need you to be part of that. They need you to take charge of the things that are happening. In the same way, God has an absolutely perfect plan that he is telling you is not something you sit on the couch and do nothing about that you work it out and you work it out especially if you're praying to god to work it out do you see the example here this is how christian is not just doing things It's being in a relationship that God has promised. The more you commune with him and relate with him, the more you will see and understand how Christianity is a relationship. And that's why Calvin, again, said this. Prayer was not primarily instituted for God, but for man. Prayer calls down the Father's tender mercy and care for his children, because having prayed... We have a sense of peace that God knows all and that he has both the will and the power to take the best care of us. That means not just that God has promised to take care of you, but that he can and he will and he does. Calvin continues, it is against God's nature not to hear and answer the prayers of his people because God feels drawn to help us and to not disappoint us in his grace. Here's something you'll notice if you read the Bible. No one in the Bible ever asked the question, if God is sovereign, why should I pray? No one. Because every time a believer in the Bible contemplated that God was sovereign, that made them start praying. Because they understood just a fraction, because of God's infinite worthiness and grace, they understood just a fraction of how God was not just telling them to do things, but to walk with him. And that leads Jesus to end the parable, which we'll end with, with this question in verse 8. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? What he's saying is, Jesus is returning one day. He says, I'm going to die, I'm going to be resurrected, I'm going to go to heaven, the church will be built, and then I'll return. And then every just thing that needs to be accomplished, every sinful deed is either going to be dealt with, through eternal punishment, or is going to be put on Christ. That believers would look innocent and therefore spend eternity with God in heaven. God will one day return and Christ will accomplish justice. But when he comes back, will he find that people prayed? Because the idea between faith is trust. That's what faith is. It's trusting God. And if you trust God, you pray. And so this is what, not me, because I don't matter. This is what Jesus is asking you. Why don't you pray? Why don't you pray? Because maybe it's because you don't trust God, and maybe it's because you don't believe in God. Many of you guys are in totally different situations hearing the sermon. Some of you guys have really good questions, but they are hiding the fact that you don't believe in God, and questions are a good way to distract people. Questions are a good way to not, to basically have an excuse not to believe in God. And God is not convinced. And some of you are on the total opposite scale, which is you have all sorts of anxiety and all sorts of stress, and you want God to answer your prayers, but you feel like he never does. And the reality is that God is trying to tell you he absolutely does. But the essential quality is not what you're praying. It's who you're praying to. Are you praying to God as someone who believes that their prayer should be answered? Are you praying to God thinking that you are entitled to anything? Or are you praying to God as someone who understands that God owes you nothing? That God is God and you are not? Do you pray to God with a kind of humble attitude, recognizing that he answered your prayers, not because you deserve it, but the total opposite. You don't deserve it. But through answering your prayers, God would prove to you that his love is so much greater than being dependent on you. That his love would reawaken you and help you understand that the purpose of this world is so much greater than you just live in life for yourself. God answers... The prayers of people who believe in jesus christ people who understand that christ was a real person who really came and really lived and he lived a perfect life and then he really died and then he really didn't stay dead because he came to save us who need our sin taken away and need it to be replaced with righteousness in which none of us can do that and yet christ did all of it for you And he didn't just do it so you would get a get out of hell free card. He got it so you could live life eternally with him. And then that starts now. And you start to experience part of the joys of heaven by seeing how God accomplishes prayer. And you get to see just tiny little tastes of the way that heaven is going to be so much greater than this world that gives us nothing. And you get to see that when you pray. And that's why we're talking about prayer. Not just because it's important. Not just because we want you to look like Christians. We want you to be Christians. And So the next time you think about this, look at Luke 18 and just see that God is not just some random, unrighteous judge who needs to be annoyed into answering your prayers. He is a father who sent Christ to prove how much he already loves you despite your sin and how he wants to accomplish something amazing and have you participate in it. Let's pray. Father, even preaching this, I can feel so humbled knowing that I'm not someone who prays so well that I can feel the assurance of salvation so perfectly father none of us can feel assurance if we are depending on what we do father you've assured us we're saved because you've given us everything we need to know about your son christ and you've shown us that he has done everything that we might know you personally and not just know you in heaven one day we might know you now so father please help us to pray You honored the request of your disciples in Luke 11 when they asked you to pray, because they could see the powerful work that it does, uniting humans to an understanding of God, your sovereign work in this world. And that's what we pray. Father, we want to be your disciples, so we want to understand that prayer is real, and it really does do amazing things. Not because of us, but because you've included us to see what you are doing. So, Father, don't let your divine words result in the hardening of these students' hearts. We know your word can only do one of two things. It can either harden our hearts or soften our hearts. So, Father, let your word soften our hearts. Let us understand that Christ is in everything we need that we might hear and be heard from you. Father, you've promised all of these things to us, so we pray with confidence, knowing that you have a good plan for our lives, and yet you have called us to pray. Father, let us see what you are doing in this world. Let us participate. Let us see that you are doing something much better than we could accomplish, something better than we could understand. We're so grateful that you honor the prayers of your people. So we thank you, Father, and we pray that this would lead to good discussion, that we might know you and love you, and we pray this in your name. Amen.